Hey there, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hohili in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Here, we're sat watching Bolsonaro lose authority as the right maneuvers to supplant him. Bolsonaro himself isn't explainable as a phenomenon without going back to June 2013, where a massive protest wave was initiated by demonstrations against transport fare hikes. Those protests gutted the political class's legitimacy. No mass protests have emerged in Brazil to challenge Bolsonaro as of yet. But elsewhere in Latin America, protests seem to be sparking up everywhere. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 23rd of October, as Chile is in flames. Dozens have died, a state of emergency with nightly curfews has been declared, all prompted by, and here we go, public transport fare increases. It's still totally unclear where this will lead. In Ecuador, meanwhile, there's been weeks of anti-austerity protests led by indigenous groups and others responding to the ending of fuel subsidies. Meanwhile, in Bolivia, the presidential elections on Sunday, the 19th of October, saw Evo Morales narrowly pass the bar to win in the first round. But accusations of fraud have led the opposition out onto the streets and Evo to declare a state of emergency. Evo Morales is in fact one of the last men standing from the region's pink tide, especially of its more radical wing. But if we flash back to November 2015, we'll find that it was in Argentina where the first pink tide government fell. That was Cristina Kirchner's in November 2015, which announced a sort of neoliberal return as Mauricio Macri took over, promising pro-business counter-reforms. Now, four years and a historically large IMF bailout later, it looks like Cristina Kirchner is about to come back into government in elections this coming weekend. Cristina, though, wouldn't be president, but instead vice president. Leading the ticket is Alberto Fernandez, who is chief of staff to Nestor Kirchner, Cristina's late husband, a decade ago. So the question here is, is the neoliberal offensive again on the back foot after yet another set of dismal failures? And what is the nature of the popular forces that are rising up to challenge it? Right, so this is Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, and George Hoare is in London. George, I mean, we're <laughs> we're here to discuss the upcoming Argentinian elections, which, as we'll find out, are a little bit of a foregone conclusion, but maybe not quite so foregone as people are talking about. But um, really, all I want to do is talk about what's happening in Chile, because it's absolutely kicking off there. <laughs> it is, in in that, that Masonite phrase, it's, <laughs> it's, certainly it's kicking off. No, I think the it's very surprising you know from from the outside how something so um so seemingly small as a as a as a price rise in in uh, public transport has has led to um to to fires and the uh, country at war with itself as the the president um described it so i think yeah i, I think it would be good to to put you know to touch on that as well and put it into the context i guess of of perhaps this you know where is Latin America, um, to, you know, to generalize in terms of the, that that um, neoliberal reaction to the pink tide and then maybe seeing a reaction to that reaction almost. Yeah, right. And I mean, you know, I guess one thing we can discuss is the, to the extent to which the pink tide in a certain sense was a kind of, as we've done before, a kind of instance of left neoliberalism, obviously completely mm. different to, you know, to whatever, to your Clintons and Blairs. Um far better really than that but uh you know at least there's a you know this kind of conservative reaction which came at the end of the pink tide um and you know maybe that's just very un unstable and that you need some kind of handouts 
along the way to to provide that sort of regime with any sort of stability. Um, and it's interesting, you know, like how yeah, as you say one little uh, w- one price rise can just set off this uh, chain of reaction. Though it, I, mean, I guess it's worth pointing out, you know, Chile like. I don't know if people have had a chance to see the videos on this. George, did you see the videos of, of what what happened basically before the riots really started, which was some direct action of people, you know, opening the um, the gates to you know public transport to the metro and stuff, and just letting people stream in. You know, what, what people call auto reduction, basically not paying for stuff, um, which is great and and actually puts in mind, you know, this is what Extinction Rebellion should be doing instead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what Occupy did, I think, 2011, maybe. Um, yeah, and it just shows that people prefer free public transport than people standing on top of their, <laughs> their public transport, on top of their tubes, meaning that they can't can't go. Um, Make people's but, lives easier. You know, that's a good hint for politics. That's just as a very basic starting point. There you go. You know, not just talking about politics, but that's that's real advice that any any activists out there can can apply. All right, so we're going to try to hopefully touch on um, Chile and Ecuador, but we've got to talk a lot about Argentina. So let's dial up Pablo. Yeah, let's do it. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> no, you need okay, to get one of those, that, that rotary ring ring phone that... <laughs> just for about three minutes as you're putting in the country code yeah, as well. Al- Sorry. Alpha, alpha bunga bunga fucking analog hipsters. Yeah. Well, we, how would you record a podcast in an analog way? You'd have to commit it to vinyl. <laughs> first, vinyl press, first press of, of the new Alpha Bunga Bunga episode. <laughs> yeah. The whole global yeah. thing also becomes pretty difficult. Um, so, yeah. Well, we, we, we will we'll mail it. Mail we'll it direct mail to, your, it. <laughs> to your door. This the is what people vin- were talking about when the protest first broke out, but something totally different might be happening now. But... Just, just I, we guarantee that it's still topical. Uh, the only, vi- the only exclusively vinyl podcast. <laughs> so this is Alex Ochili in Brazil. George Hoare is in London, and we're very happy to be joined today by Pablo Priluca, who's a PhD student at Princeton studying social and economic history of Latin America uh, and was previously an activist in Argentina when he lived there. Hi, Pablo. Great to have you. Hey, how are you guys? Thanks for having me. Very it's well. It's an honor to well. be here. As people will have heard in the introduction, uh, delighted to be discussing this uh, on a Monday as uh, there are riots and protests seemingly across the region. So um, first of all, I think it'd probably be worth, before we delve a little bit more deeper specifically into Argentina and then uh, round out talking about Chile and Ecuador, that uh, what the kind of general feeling is, because, I mean, you know, Chile has exploded in the past couple of days, seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, we had weeks of protests in Ecuador. Uh, and now there's this election coming up in, in Argentina. Uh, I mean, can what, what do you feel like this signifies, if you can take a like a, just an initial uh, temperature take of, of what's going on in across South America right now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, right now, I would say it's hard to tell because we are still seeing how the events are happening. But what it seems is like during the last two months, I would say, first Peru, then Ecuador, now now Chile, they are going through pretty intense social upheavals and social unrest. So, like, if 
we look back two or three years ago, people were saying that the 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 pink tide in Latin America was kind of coming to an end with the election of Macri and Bolsonaro. And what we are kind of seeing now is that this kind of re-emergence of a neoliberal alternative in Latin America is finally seeing the first signs of of uh, of having problems dealing with with the economy, but also with with social expectations about the future. So I would say that right now we are seeing the collapse of these kind of governments and the emergence of governments more conservative, like in the case of Bolsonaro or, or well, in the case of Trump here in the United States. And 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 that's interesting because it, it, it implies difference with the most traditional neoliberal uh, governments we've seen in the region in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's the most interesting, like... Uh, feature of this of these days yeah and i guess these uh protests riots upheavals have emerged uh under relatively sort of different governments at least i mean piñera in in uh in chile is is you know it's conservative whereas yeah. uh, lenny moreno is kind of a center left um, was supposed to be was at supposed least. to be center left um, yeah yeah and, and certainly far to the right of, of his namesake at any, in any at any rate so yeah um, but we had resignation of Kuczynski in Peru and yeah. then Vizcarra calling, I mean, closing the parliament and calling to a new election. So, so it seems that the political stability that this, this kind of new uh, Pacific group governments uh, were expecting to have uh, two or three years ago, now it's beginning to, to, to have some, facing some problems, I would say. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. And I think, you know, Argentina was probably the first, uh, first indicator that, you know, the pink tide was coming to an end. I mean, that was in November 2015. And then, uh, you know, a year later, uh, it was the end of it was the end of PT, or rather less than that. Um, really, only a couple of months later, it was the end of PT in Brazil. So um, I guess what happens in Argentina is fairly important also for the rest of the region. So turning to that country specifically, what would you say it's like in Argentina now? I mean, for those who aren't familiar, you might want to fill us in on this. There's an, a degree to which these elections are a foregone conclusion because of the primary system, which is relatively complicated. It might be worth uh, you uh, explaining what that's like initially, um, but also if you can tell us what kind of what the sense is there right now. Is there a sense of expectation of a change of government, uh, perhaps a relief that the Macri government might be coming to an end, or just uh, maybe not too much sense of any hope that that things will significantly change? Well, I mean, yeah, th- those are. Very good questions. Let's start with elections and, and, and the primary. So we have this primary system where every party has to present a candidate or many candidates and you can vote in inside like any primary inside the party that you want. I mean, you can choose the primary you want to want vote in. What happened in the last election is that there were no primaries, actually. I mean, all the all the parties present just or, or most of the parties present just one candidate. So it was like a similar like a kind of a. Yeah, fake election, if you want. I mean, but the the final numbers were quite significant because Alberto Fernandez uh, did a, a really good election. He got around 48% of the votes, while the current president, Mauricio Macri, only got around 33 So it seems that the elections of next Sunday could be, uh, I mean... It seems that the the, the output is going to be is going to be the same. I mean, we still have to wait, but but that's the feeling right now. I went to Buenos Aires for the last time in Argentina, uh, like a couple of months ago, right after the the primary election. So the feeling was that the feeling was that 
this government is finally coming to an end. But I mean, although there is obviously a feeling of hope about the future, there is a sense that even if if, if Fernandez uh, wants to start a really progressive government, the current situation is quite hard. And, and to understand that, we need to understand the, the last government of Macri, which, of course, had like a pretty bad performance in economic terms, in terms of standard of living and in terms of real wages, in terms of inflation and other, other problems that affect the everyday life of, of Argentinian population, of the Argentinian population, but also the coming back to the EMF and, 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 and the, the growth of the, of the foreign debt in Argentina, it's a problem that will have consequence, consequences in the future. So in that sense, the feeling right now is that there are many, many macroeconomic imbalances and, mm. and, and, and the things doesn't look, look pretty well for the future, for, at least for the immediate future. So I, I just had a question, I guess, about <clears throat> maybe um, some of the, the wider context um, specific to Argentina. So I guess one of the one of the particular um, parts of the ideological constellation that gets talked about a lot in analyses of Argentina is Peronism. So I just yep. wondered if you could explain a little bit to um, uh, to our listeners what what exactly this means um, and why it plays such an important role um, in Argentinian politics um, and how maybe Macri might be um, seen as, I guess, a, a bit of an exception to to this um, way of governing. Well, let, let's start for the la- for that last part and then go back to Bernism. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Macri is the first, actually, is the first president, if you want, coming from a political party openly situated on the right side of the political spectrum, that it's actually finishing uh, his his presidential man, uh, his presidential term. So mm-hmm. in the history of Argentina, I would say. So so this is the first time that the right in Argentina has a candidate, a competitive candidate. I mean, the other times that the extreme right and the center right came to government together in Argentina was with different kind of uh, dictatorships and, and, and yeah, military regimes. So mm-hmm. uh, to understand, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible to, to explain Peronism in a nutshell, but, but I would say the main feature of, of Peronist governments was the increasing, the increasing of, of the standard of living of, of the working class in Argentina, even if that maybe wasn't the original pro, uh, project of, of Perón when, when he went into politics. What happened is that the Peronist coalition uh, between the 1940s, mid-1940s and the mid-1950s, when Perón was overthrown by, by, by a coup d'etat, was the, yeah an increase in, in the standard of living of the of the working class and, and and of the political organization of the working class in trade unions and and, and inside the the, the, the different uh, factories in Argentina. So 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 in that sense, uh, Peronism had a long-standing uh, presence in in Argentinian politics, mainly because what happened after 1955, after the coup, was that Peronism was proscribed from Argentinian politics. And, and, and only came back in 1973. And after that, we had one of the bloodiest uh, South American dictatorships uh, from 1976 to 1983. So what, you, what we had after that was first a kind of a neoliberal reform, pro-neoliberal reform government, which with someone who actually came from, from the Peronist party. And that's perhaps the most uh, hard or the most yeah hard thing to explain to someone who is not familiarized with Argentinian politics, I would say this is something similar to what happened 
with the pre-Mexico, but in the sense that a government who used to be more left-center or something like that began to adopt the IMF uh, ideas and, mm. and, and exert, uh, or, 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 yeah, or, or just adopt the structural reform program. So that, I mean, that leaves us with the 2001 crisis, which is pretty well known because of the of how deep it was and, and the consequences it had. And then the emergence of, of this new movement called Kirchnerismo, or Kirchnerism, uh, who, uh, which in, in some senses uh, revealed the idea of a Peronist identity in Argentina. Hmm. It might be worth actually explaining a little bit what Kirchnerismo uh, is and how it distinguishes itself from from pro, the Peronism of the past. I mean, the Peronism of the past is you know a multi-headed beast, as you've already indicated. It can point in kind of you know kind of more center-left or co- in corporatist directions and uh, more neoliberal ones. Uh, and it seems that most roads in Argentinian politics point through Peronism in one way or another. Um, as you already said, I think the, there's been Macri's will be the first government. Uh, in history, from a non-Peronist uh, party uh, to actually f- continue, to actually finish its term, correct? Um, yeah. So that I mean, that's quite remarkable. It's, it seems that everything goes through Peronism, and yet uh, since, there's a lot sorry, of different since, politics since the coming back of the democracy after right. the last yeah, dictatorship. Yeah. 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 Um, I should have I should have made that clear. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, you know, and you can see as you've spelled out that there is at least a kernel to Peronism, which has the incorporation of certain. Sections of the working class, certain working class demands. Um, to what extent does Kirchnerismo do the same, or to what extent did it do the same over, I guess, over the pink tide period in which it was in power? Well, that's a good question. I mean, Kirchnerism kind of did the same thing, but the situation was completely different. I mean, what you had after the 2001 crisis was a lot, I mean, a huge amount of the population just outside the labor market and outside any kind of uh, employment. I mean, without any employment, so the unemployment rate was quite high. And 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 what you also have, and you're familiarized with that, because that's one of the main features of the neoliberal model models are uh, was the the emergence of the informal sector and the rise of the informal sector, right, of the economy. So Kirchnerism kind of incorporate a lot of uh, unemployed people into formal and informal uh, employments. And and with that you had the, the well, I mean especially during the first eight years of, of 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 the first four with Nestor Kirchner and then the first government of Christina Kirchner the economy grew quite uh, fast and and that implied that 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 yeah the standard of living of the especially of the working class and the underclass uh, grew quite fastly so so by 2000 the Argentinian economy became to, began to stagnate or show some signs of stagnation and the last four years of Christina Kirchner government were kind of uh, stable in terms of economic growth so so in some senses Macri's promise had to do with um, with maybe trying to find faster ways or easiest ways to solve the problem of inflation, but also finally reducing poverty and, and, and find a stable path towards development. Right now, and we knew it in 2005, but in 2015, but right now it's quite obvious, those were not more than promises. And, and what we are seeing now is that inflation is still growing, poverty instead of reduced 
increased and, and, and unemployment as well, while, while real wages uh, decreased in these last four years. So right now the situation is quite bad uh, in terms of the macroeconomic or, or the economy in Argentina. Yeah, I so think it might be before worth... we, oh, sorry, go ahead, George. Yeah, before before moving on to, I guess, some of the um, discussion of the, the economics, it's just I uh, just wanted to ask a quick um, follow up. You, you you mentioned the um, the coalition that that um, of class forces that backed Peronism in the in the mid forties to mid mid fifties. Yeah. Who who were the who were the social groups that um, that made up this Kirchnerist uh, coalition and a and a backing Hernandez today? Well, I mean, there was certainly certain elite sectors who benefit. I mean, who who who, who obtain pretty nice benefits during during the Kirchnerism years. But also, I think what what gave a lot of stability to the Kirchnerism project was that they could incorporate many of the social sectors who had been previously, especially during the two thousand and one crisis, part or involved to the Piquetero movement in Argentina. Mm. I mean, different kind of social movements that began to grow during the last part of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. And that, I mean, ma- mainly this kind of underclass that began to be incorporated by Kishnerism into, into social welfare. And in that way, they began to find, let's say, new institutional channels uh, to, to post their claims and to, mm. to talk to the state, if you want. So in that sense, a lot of people began to feel identified with, with Kishnerism. And if you see the result of the elections, the last ones, but also in 2017 and 2015, you will see that all the industrial or post-industrial areas around the city of Buenos Aires are pretty uh, blue, let's say. I mean, are pretty hegemonized uh, by, by, by Kishnerism or, or different uh, Peronist alternatives. Interesting. I wonder also, I mean, I think it might be worth in terms of talking about the waxing and wanings of the fortunes of Kirchnerismo uh, and then, you know, Macri's neoliberal assault or neoliberal attempt, you know, how, I guess, how epochal these shifts seem to be. I mean, you know, the 2000s, you know, Argentina benefited from the commodity supercycle in the similar way that Brazil did and was able to to surf that wave. Um, of course, they had some important policies which perhaps were able to maybe sustain a certain growth and make it a little bit more redistributive than if it had been under more right-wing governments. And it might be worth actually exploring uh, what Kirchnerism actually did in power over that period, but also the, the way in which that comes to an end at the end of the commodities uh, the commodities boom and how Macri sweeps in uh, as an alternative and, and the way that the liberal, neoliberal uh, Latin American right uh, across the the continent really kind of celebrates this as as a kind of ah now we have the end of these old corrupt center left governments of course the discourse of corruption being very present uh, from the, yeah. from the right uh, very often as we've discussed a number of times on this podcast and listeners might want to check out our episodes on Brazil if you haven't heard them before uh, to understand yeah. a little bit more of this process um, but if you could spell out exactly you know how really how epochal these shifts really feel at these moments post mm-hmm. two thousand one um, when the you know when the Kirchners come in then throughout that period in office and then also Macri coming in. No, that's interesting. I mean, I remember clearly in 2003, I was young and I went, Fidel Castro went to Buenos Aires and he was kind of doing this tour through Latin American countries and Kirchner just had won the election. So, so Fidel Castro came for, for the, the, 
yeah, the the assumption that the, when when he took office in in I think it was May two thousand and three, but I'm not sure. No, it was more like December two thousand and three. So I remember there was in two thousand and three a feeling that something new was uh, coming in in Latin America, and in that sense, it definitely had like the sign of new times coming. Of course, it had to do with, with, with the commodity boom, but I guess it also had to do with the collapse of the first neoliberal reforms during the 80s and the 90s, especially in the 90s in the region. I mean, if you take a look into the emergence of, of the PT governments in Brazil, of Evo Morales in Bolivia, even of the first Chavez in, in Venezuela, and, and, and of course, Kirchnerism or, 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 or the Frente Amplio in, in, in Uruguay, and by the way, there are elections in Uruguay next weekend, but if you take a look into the merchants of all those movements, almost all of them had to do with the collapse of the neoliberal mother or, or, or the neoliberal regime that was that was in power before in different kind of ways. So in that sense, that was uh, that was like yeah a change in times. What I'm what I I'm not that sure about is about the end of this pink tide, because if you think in terms of tides, and I'm, 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 I'm kind of reframing what Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia, uh, it's been working on during the last years, I guess, is if you think in terms of tides, you need to think in terms of something that comes and goes and then goes further, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so I guess that all those governments, Kirchnerism in Argentina, uh, Lula in Brazil, well, I mean, I don't want to, to mention all of them again, but were kind of a first wave. And I say this because even if then this kind of conservative backlash that we had in different countries uh, thought about itself, I mean, this, this new government thought about themselves as the, the let's say, the, the end of the, whatever you want to call it, pink-type populist regimes in Latin America, uh, actually, the situation was different because a populist or, or, or a popular or a center-left regime, it's not only about uh, redistribution of income or redistribu redistribution of wealth, but it's also about political organizations. So I think it's there, if there is an output of those years of, of what you like to call the Latin American the pink tide, I would say it also had to do with new, new social moments, uh, movements, new political cadres, and new uh, ways in which the working class and social and popular sectors began to organize themselves. And that was clear when these kind of new conservative governments tried to uh, impose new austerity measures or new, let's say, new structural reforms in Argentina, but also now we're seeing that in Ecuador and, and in Chile. There is another level of political organization that wasn't there in 2000, in the crisis of the late 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, I would say. That's interesting. And I think we might want to talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. I, this does seem to be a thread which actually might run through our whole conversation here. But, you know, the, the repeated kind of neoliberal offensives, uh, their failures and the retreat uh, is, is something that happens obviously in, in cycles, but I mean, it seems to be perhaps, and maybe this is a this is a hypothesis we might want to discuss, uh, is something that might be accelerating now, precisely because that the kind of end of pink tide neoliberal offensive seems to be under attack now, or you know, in, in serious crisis in many different places, um, and so maybe explain kind of looking at what prompts that failure. 
uh, is interesting. Also, the degree to which uh, forces can be organized to challenge that is also interesting. I mean, it, one kind of irony, I'm just going to mention this as an aside before we move on to look uh, a little bit more deeply at the economic situation in Argentina, it, it is the way that the uh, Pink Tide governments, in some ways, oversaw the kind of high period of neoliberalism globally. And so maybe, you know, it does prompt the question whether they're a more um, more politically legitimate form of neoliberalism uh, than have been the, the right-wing governments, which have been much more unstable, it seems. Um, but well, that might actually, be a, a question going forward. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, there is something about, and you were talking about that, I mean, the, the failures or, 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 or how the, this kind of new neoliberal regimes or governments couldn't create or be persuasive enough or and, and, and you know politics most of all has to do with have to do with, with being persuasive like convince people convince people so when we are seeing this kind of uh, crisis of the new neoliberal or whatever you want to call it uh, governments in, in Latin America I would say I mean it looks like great news in, in a way but I I would be careful because I mean the other kind of alternative that is emergence is is the Bolsonaro's of the world, mm-hmm. who may also have a neoliberal agenda in some ways, but are much more conservative and much more, uh, yeah, anti any kind of civil rights. So when I see Piñera in Chile together with the military, uh, or when I see the collapse of the Congress and and the and, and the. Uh, the rise of, of Fushi, Fushi, I mean, Fushi Morrison in, in Peru, or, or when, when I begin to see, like, in the last presidential debate yesterday and, and two weeks ago in Argentina, two political candidates openly uh, situating themselves on the right and, and saying and, and saying that there, there was, I mean, kind of praising the military for, for what they've done during the, the last dictatorship in the country. Well, let me be, let me be a bit pessimistic and a bit scary about about what it's coming so so yeah i mean i would say that I think, yeah i think that skepticism is absolutely due seeing what's happened in brazil though it's also worth pointing out that uh, bolsonaro's government is pretty flimsy at the moment he's kind of been yeah. abandoned by his party but that doesn't mean that uh, that a kind of a more let's say more traditionally conservative authoritarian uh, government might not be waiting in the wings i mean after all even if even if in the in the um if, if Bolsonaro were to be impeached at some point, you know, it's his vice president is uh, is a military general. Yeah. So, you know, that might it might the military actually might prove a, a far more stable ally to capital than, you know, kind of crazy right wing culture warriors in the in the guise of Bolsonaro. But so, mm. so, but so not to talk about Brazil, because we do have to delve a little bit deeper into into Argentina. Yeah. Um, I think it might be worth talking about, you know, Macri's government and to what extent uh, de, has uh Argentina's economic difficulties, you know, I mean, the, the peso has devalued by 50% this year, uh, the significant increase in inflation, uh, the cost of utilities has shot up. To what extent have the, are these things caused by Macri government's rule, or do they just expose the existing weaknesses in the Argentinian economy? I mean, I think it was interesting. I saw it, I, I was in doing some research for this, I found an, an, an economic, an economist article from 2017, uh, yeah. which, you know, in its typically kind of snooty fashion asked at the time of the midterm elections in 2017, asked, yeah. uh, you know, is Argentina going to choose sobriety or Peronism? You know, so, mm. <laughs> uh, but well, that's obviously kind the way the that same, international capital it's kind of the same. It. It's kind of the same discourse that is going on right now. I mean, Absolutely, yeah. Um, so if you could explain to us, you know, in your view, what you think is 
the role attributable to, to Macri's government and the choices that it made? Uh, and to what extent are these just structural features of the, of the Argentinian economy, which any government would have faced? Okay, so first of all, I would say two things. First, to understand Macrism I hit, uh, or, or Macri's government, I think to, we need to hint into two things. One of, I mean, the first one is, I mean, it, the, this government is kind of a combination of two things. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, on the one hand, you have like people coming from a liberal or neoliberal tradition, as uh, I don't, however you want to call it. Uh, who actually think that or thought that Argent, what Argentina needed, or, or they actually still think the same thing. I mean, but what Argentina needed at the time was a liberalization process, and then they need to deregulate any of the capital account, and they need to deregulate foreign trade and try to eliminate any kind of fiscal deficit. Uh, so, and doing that, the Argentine economy will start running again because if you have institutions, then those institutions will kind of support government. On the other hand, I do think that Macrism had inside the government people who were just trying to benefit friends and who was just trying to benefit private companies because maybe because they believe that, that, that what we call the Teoria del Derrame, I mean, what we, I mean, that, that, that if you create new new wealth, the, the wealth will just magically be distributed through the, the whole society, or maybe because what they will just uh, corrupt. I mean, which is which is something that that uh, that also happened. But uh, in terms of your question was about uh, macroism and what happened during these last years. I do think that there was there were some serious macroeconomic imbalances during the the last four years of Christina Kirchner government, although those macroeconomic imbalance uh, were kind of worsened by, by, by Macri in all the possible ways. I mean, I, I, I know this, this sounds kind of harsh, but I do think two things. I mean, on the one hand, I, I think that, that Macrism was definitely the worst democratic government in, in Argentinian history in terms of their performance. But I also think that the election they are doing right now is not that bad as many analysts are, are, are pointing out. I mean, they actually retain it one third of the votes, which is quite high. They got like a 33, 34% of the votes. So, so in that sense, I would say that even if Macrism had to deal with the not an easy situation, what they are like delivering right now, the final, I mean, if, if they finally lose the election, I don't, don't like to, 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 to say, I mean, to, to claim, <laughs> sorry, yeah, to claim victory before it happened. But, but I do think that, that the, the, the final days of macroism are seen are seeing, seeing the, by, 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 by economic chaos. I mean, inflation, it's like around five or six points per month. So, mm. I mean, foreign debt is above or around 100% over GDP. I mean, the exports are not growing as much. So Argentina is facing for 2020 and 2021, a pretty complicated uh, economic situation, especially concern, I mean, related to, to, to foreign debt. And, and, and on the other hand, uh, the economy is quite, it's quite, it's almost frozen right now. I mean, the GDP is barely growing, uh, investment, I mean, it's not moving as, as, as much as, as they, they were promising. So, so especially after 2017, uh, the situation doesn't look good. 
So I just had a, a, a question on the the role of um, you mentioned foreign debt and the, yeah. the um, around hundred hundred percent of GDP yeah. um, debt that Argentina is in. What what's the role of 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 this in um, I guess in in discourse around is is there a, a really strong um, discourse around austerity that yeah. you know there needs to be massive public sector cuts. Um, is there a lot of resentment towards the IMF, which has has um, bailed what? out Argentina? Maybe I think it's twenty something times. I mean, what what what's how how does it, this get politicized? Well, I mean, of course, going back to the IMF uh, didn't have a, a a positive impact on public opinion. I mean, in Argentina, when you mentioned the IMF, I I don't know if probably in other countries it's kind of the same story. But in Argentina, when you mention the IMF, uh, you will not. Uh, get smiles so so people yeah people were quite annoyed on that but mostly because people knew what was happening i mean like what macrism was kind of doing was replacing uh, internal public debt by 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 taking money from the emf and in that way they could reduce the foreign deficit the main problem of that is that in the midterm if you don't create uh, enough dollars if by 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 exports or, or or different ways then you 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 are not able to repay and we know how that story ends that story usually ends with the emf suggesting uh, structural adjustment and austerity measures and 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 that has an impact on 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 welfareism but also on economic activity because the presence of the state in in argentina is quite uh, it's quite uh, big, and 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 if you start cutting public spending, that in a way implies that you are you are kind of uh, stopping or or, or yeah or, or slowing the economy. Mm. So so yeah, I guess that's the main the main thing related to EMF. It doesn't it didn't have a very good press, let's say before Macri went back to them, and 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 definitely and certainly. People right now are not willing to to hear more about the EMF, although Argentina has a foreign state that that has to face and, and and probably will need to find a way to to reorganize the the payment schedule. I mean, do you have any insider position on why you think the IMF uh, went in for this bailout? I mean, it was the IMF's largest ever bailout, and you yeah. know, this kind of Argentina decided to do a sort of soft default on it. I mean, why does the why did the IMF opt to uh, to to renew these loans again um, after what is that? I think twenty two different uh, bailouts by the IMF to Argentina uh, over the over the years over the decades. Um, so, what is the IMF's position on this? What do you think? Well, it's hard to tell because the IMF is changing right now. I mean, the the, the direction of of the IMF changed like a, a month ago or so. So, so Christine Lagarde just quit the the. the I mean, she moved to the European Central for Bank for another cushy new job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she got an yeah. So it's hard to tell. I'm not a specialist on on the EMF. I would say it was quite clear that Argentina was uh, an important case for the EMF, and that's why they are still kind of negotiating with the government and trying to find a way to solve this problem. Right now, I think they're going to do the same with 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 whoever Alberto Fernandez chooses as 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 his his economic team. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think it had to do with with 
on the one hand, a need of the EMF to to rebrand uh, its own image after the the crisis of the early 2000s, and 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 well, and also with the role of the EMF in the in the monet international monetary system. I mean, that's why the EMF is there in theory. I mean, it's it's there to to support countries with 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 capital account problems. So, or, or yeah, I would say external problems. So it's hard to tell why the persistence, why they choose Argentina, if it had something to do with 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 defending a new or, or supporting a new kind of of, of liberal kind of or, or righty kind of government in the region, or or if the agenda uh, was was somehow different. But the fact was that they they. During this last two years, the EMF was kind of quite committed to, to support Macri's government, although it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, I, I guess in light of a light of that failure, in light of uh, I mean these serious overheads in terms of debt that Argentina has, uh, you know, high inflation, uh, the situation for for many people there in terms of rising costs. I mean, what do you see as the outcome? I mean, can you? Both in terms of the election, I mean, we we, we foresee the the return of Kirchnerismo, Kirchnerismo to power. Though I guess it's worth stating that this is that uh, Cristina Kirchner is, is uh, will be vice president to a kind yes. of, to someone who's much more uh, a more moderate force, I guess, more even of the center right. I think of, from within Peronismo, right? Yeah. Um, so, what do you see that government playing out like, and do you think it'll be uh, will provide any relief for people, even at a very uh, sort of basic level in terms of uh, renewing maybe some subsidies to, to make the cost of to ease the difficulties in terms of cost of living. Uh, what do you foresee that kind of, uh, you know, kind of renewed Kirchnerismo government actually looking like? Well, I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, on as an analyst, I would say we really don't know. I mean, on the one hand, we we do see a lot of new, like a new generation of, of politicians being involved with, with Alberto Fernandez, like the new candidate for the province of, of Buenos Aires, Axel Kisilov, who used to be the, the Minister of Economy for Cristina in the last government, and, and a new generation of like people under late 30s, early 40s, kind of being involved with, with more relevant uh, positions and coming from a more, uh, let's say, leftist uh, origins. Uh, but at the same time, Alberto Fernandez, as you just mentioned, it's a very pragmatic guy, and and it's he, he it's it's hard to tell exactly how the new government will look like, especially because we don't have the the we don't have that many clues to figure that out. We don't have the names of the future cabinet, and 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 so it's hard to 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 tell exactly. On the other hand, as as an Argentinian citizen, as as and as a former. Uh, activist, I would say I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, <laughs> and I really expect they can actually, uh, at least right now, uh, produce uh, an income distributed, uh, like a, yeah, a distributive shock in terms of income, at least for the people who is actually having a really bad time now. So, so I hope that's possible, and I hope they they actually find a way to 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 go through that without go, I mean, without falling into an, an and hyperinflation or, or, or increasing increasing fiscal debt, the uh, fiscal deficit that much. 
it's hard to tell. I would say so, it's like the the optimism of, of of what I want and the pessimism of 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 trying to to look at the big picture, right? Yeah. So just quickly um, to round off Argentina before we talk about uh, the exciting goings on in Chile and also in Ecuador. What do you see as being uh, the the state of play to the left of Kirchnerismo uh, in in Argentina outside of Peronism? I mean, what is the degree of organization? What what is the degree of labor militancy kind of at the moment? And is there any kind of um, is there any kind of rising force on the left beyond Kirchnerismo which might uh, push it one way or another while it's in government? Well, I mean, I do think that 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 when uh, we were talking about this, like like. A moment ago, I mean, I do think that one of the, one of the, yeah, the, the main, uh, let's say, the main outputs of of the pink tide was was the, the fact that a, a new generation of of young people began to be involved in politics, and you can see that in almost all of the countries of of Latin America, and it had to do with the generation that didn't go through the dictatorships and that have a different approach to politics in many many ways compared to the old uh, let's say the old political cadres that that we already knew. So so in that sense, I do think that there is a strong ambivalent movement inside Kishnerism that I will situate it. On, I would situate situate sorry on the left. You have a I mean the. the there is a wide array of, of lefts inside that movement, but I do think that that new political organizations like like Campora or Nuevo Encuentro and other more leftist like like Nueva Mayoría or or or, 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 or new or, or form older political organizations that now are, are going into this this Frente de Todos, which is the na- the name of the of the political front they are they are organizing. Uh, it's quite vibrant and quite interesting. And we are looking forward to see what they do once they, if they get uh, into power after next Sunday. So speaking of protests, uh, we it's always good to, to move on to talk about places where there's people and on the streets lighting fires, um, <laughs> just because it gets the yeah. gets the blood flowing a little bit more um, <laughs> than talking about uh, IMF restructuring and uh, and pre and foregone conclusion elections. So uh, Chile, uh, for those who don't know, as I said in the introduction, um, you know mass protests, riots, um, curfews, and so on. So you know. I, it, what strikes me uh, living in Brazil, it's how much these what, what's happening in Chile looks like the Brazil of June 2013, um, where, you know, there's a public transport rise in an otherwise fairly stable situation, posting reasonable growth rates that suddenly explodes. And it's completely disorganized, spontaneous, decentralized. Uh, and yet it's, it's also very... Um, very agitated, violent in certain mm-hmm. cases. So, I mean, what what has bred this, in your opinion? And and I guess maybe looking at it perhaps a little bit more broadly, a little bit more th- trying to th- theorize a little bit about it. You know, why is it that um, pr- these riots emerge around prices and price increases specifically? Why does why do these politics take that form? Yeah, and I, and I I would add to that 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 
what is particularly interesting, I mean, it's hard to talk about how interesting Chile is right now because it's really terrible. When it, what, what is going on right now, I mean, we, we, we have more than 10 people dead and, and more than 1,700 uh, in jail. So, so the situation is it's quite terrible right now. But in terms of, of analysis, I would say that Chile was always presented as, as, the, as the student of the class. I mean... So in terms of how they were, they were actually reaching, sustaining development uh, and, and how they were kind of reducing poverty uh, over the years. But at the same time, the, the levels of inequality, and I think that's where we need to look right now, the levels of inequality kept being quite high. And in terms of, of, of consumption and, and the prices, or in this case of public transportation, it has to do with, with the material conditions of the populations, but all, of the population, but also with the perception and the expectations they have in terms of, of having a certain standard of living. So when 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 people realize that the plans towards the future begin to be in problem, I mean, in problems, or, or or when they are expecting to have a certain level of upward social mobility. And those promises are finally not fulfilled, partially because they cannot, under the current models uh, of, of, of economic uh, management. So I would say that when those promises and those expectations about having a certain standard of living, you can wait for it. I mean, you can wait for some time, but after a certain amount of time, people began to feel irritated about it. And sometimes when you... I mean, you only need like a sparkle to, to set up this, this kind of, of, of huge fires and to have like uh, to have riots on the streets. And, and that's what we are seeing in, in Chile and that's what we are seeing in, in Ecuador. I mean, I, I, Chile is an interesting case in terms of that. I mean, you, 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 have, you have like a, a huge amount or, or, or the 10%, uh, let's say, of, of the population living really well. And then and, and, uh, as Kind of, kind of a strong middle class, but then you have people earning around four hundred dollars per month and having to pay at least one dollar just to take one subway. So it's pretty obvious that when you raise the public transportation fare, you will have problems. Chile is a country where people, I mean, working class people and also probably lower middle class people, they don't use any kind of heat system during the winter because it's almost unaffordable. I mean, so the, I'm talking about like every day. It's cold in winter in Chile for those who, and it's for those really who don't know. Yeah, really cold. Yeah, yeah, really cold. It's, so, it's, it's chilly. Oh, sorry? I have to cut that out. That's it's, terrible. So it's, it's British English. Chilly means means cold. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, okay. okay. I got your point. So, we're, so, 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 no, you were right to blanket initially. That just carried on. You, you gave exactly <laughs> the response it deserved. But I got it. So, so I guess that, yeah, I mean, we need to understand the problem of inequality in terms of the perceptions about uh, the perceptions that people began to, to have about the role they play in, in, in the society where they live and what they deserve and what they, 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 yeah, they're entitled to. So uh, I, I would say that right now, and there are many, many scholars and, and intellectuals working on, on, on these issues of inequality, I would say it's not just income or wealth inequality, but also the perception about inequality that we need to take into account right now. I think one of the, one of the striking things is that the, um, the objective conditions in 
so many countries really seem to be there for this sort of um, these sorts of protests and these sorts of um, you know verging onto riots in in many cases because the in a, you know it's not even a particularly complicated point but the inequality and the expectations that particularly maybe uh, downwardly mobile uh, middle class um, younger people have um, are, are, are decreasing. Um, while the inequality is increasing, expectations are decreasing. And it seems like Chile from the outside, as Alex said, seems very stable. But then, in fact, there are so many things from privatised water to pension system crisis to um, education and you know healthcare systems yes, and- in terrible situation that it it it's it's you in some ways you sort of want political scientists to to do some to do some science and do some prediction but of course that's that's not the sort of activity that they're they're engaged in they just uh, explain afterwards rather than predict beforehand yeah sure and you begin to have i mean when you have this process of and you were mentioning brazil and and the the the, the riots and the social upheaval in brazil like three years ago it was 2015 or 2014 yeah, I mean, 2013 set okay. off a, a wave of, of mobilization that lasted about three or four years, really, and then changed shape quite significantly. But it initially started precisely no, but, with uh, transport uh, tariff rises. Uh, uh, but, but I was thinking also that, that in terms of this, this kind of tunnel effect that you have when certain uh, societies began to experience economic growth for a while, and, and, and this idea of the tunnel effect is like where you're in your car and you're in this tunnel, um, I mean, the transit is not moving, and cars are, are are just there. And then the right line begins to move, begins to move, and then you have the expectation that okay, if the right uh, line is moving, at some point it will be my turn. But when after a couple of hours, <laughs> you still you are still in the same place, then you begin you will get, you will begin to feel frustrated about it, and you will you will begin to feel more irritated about why the right line is moving while you are stopped there. And and maybe you only need a sparkle, you only need like the, the rise of public transportation first, or 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 in, like in the case of Ecuador, the the, the I mean the, the cancellation of, of one of these fuel subsidies to 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 launch a, a pretty pretty strong social upheaval. Yeah, no, indeed. I, it, it is interesting how it's more rising expectations which uh, prompt these outbursts. And it's rather different to something like a, an economic collapse and uh, protests, riots, upheaval that emerge from that, like emerged in Argentina in 2001. I mean, the situation yes. in Chile right now, obviously it's early days, so it's hard to say too much. But even so, it, it's prompted by something really rather different. It's prompted by just as in Brazil, rising expectations and and the frustration of that. And maybe if, if I could ask you, you know, seeing as you study kind of con- the, the interlinking of consumerism and development, I mean, why is it precisely that, you know, price rises are the thing that bite? I guess it might be that, you know, as a hypothesis, you know, and in, in, under, a, you know, in a ne- neoliberal era where uh, a lot of legitimacy is bought on the basis that you have rising private consumption, uh, that when that comes to a halt, uh, people, um, you know, burst out in rage, basically, because that, that it's, a, it's something that bites quite strongly, this frustrated ambition to, to be able to, to consume uh, more and better things and have a, have a better standard of living. So it's when fuel prices rise, you know, or utility prices rise, that people um, are brought out onto the streets, probably more than, um, more than kind of labor militancy actually does, it seems, these days. 
Would you would you agree with that kind of picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, that there is such a big difference between neoliberalism and, and what we had before in terms of the importance of consumption. I do think that social analysts, economists, and sometimes we historians as well kind of underestimate the role of consumption and the importance of consumption to understand, uh, yeah, social change. I mean, I do think that instead of seeing consumption as as, as a tool for integration or domination or whatever you want to call it, uh, or alienation if you come from a more Marxist tradition, I would say that also consum consumption, when you live in a capitalist society mediated by the marketplace, is the way that you interact with your own standard of living and that you interact with, with or, or is the way in which class struggle can be expressed. I mean, sometimes we think about what happened in the 40s and in the 50s in, in some Latin American countries when people began, began, began to have, uh, I don't know, like certain electronic appliances or, or an automobile or, or different, different uh, durable consumer goods. And we tend to think about those processes in terms of integration or domination or alienation. And I do think that we are missing the point there. And I do think we need to understand the importance and the relevance that having a car, for instance, has uh, to someone coming from a from a working class family, so so or or a middle class family. So in that sense, uh, I would say that that consumption is, is crucial in terms of of understanding what I was saying before about the 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 perception of inequalities and the expectations about inequalities. So yeah, I mean, consumption is relevant because it's the way we uh, kind of experience practically our standard of living. I mean, it's not just going back home and, 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 and just, uh, I don't know, uh, have like certain, certain commodities or certain goods there, but it's also the fact of being able to afford them and to have access to them. So when, when those perceptions about inequality began to be, uh, or begin to be a problem, then, yeah, I mean, I would say that 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 the sparkle that can set up the fire will probably has to do with with some sort of of, of basic need that it's not fulfilled in this case transportation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's right, and also you know the the spark here, you know, is things which are quite basic, which it's not that people are rioting over the desire to have the you know the new iPhone, for example. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, and, and you're absolutely right to highlight that certain of the kind of academic treatments of consumption tend to be uh, tend to be a bit snooty or snobbish, I guess, in in looking yes. at popular desires and aspirations uh, for a higher standard of living as somehow uh, bought off by consumerism or alienated or you know whatever. Um, so I think I think yeah, that is worth highlighting. I think it would be nice to finish off on something a little bit uh, thematic and looking at kind of how consumerism uh, intersects with certain models of development in in Latin America. But before that, it might be worth dedicating just a just a couple of minutes to Ecuador because Ecuador similarly seems to be sparked off by protests around the increased cost of goods. So in the, in this case, was uh, the ending of fuel subsidies, and yeah. but it's rather different from Chile. Both in the sense that Ecuador is a very different society to Chile. Chile is wealthier, has a larger middle class, and so and so yep. on. But but it was also that I think the level of, of social organization leading these protests was much greater than what is happening in Chile right now. Right? I mean, this was indigenous groups and trade unions who led this in a way that I think the 
the Chilean eruption is a lot more spontaneous. So, I mean, what, what is your view on, on what's actually happened in Ecuador over the past month? No, yeah, I mean, we're, although Chile do have, does have this, this, this kind of leftist tradition that is, is alive and, 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 and a strong socialist and communist party, but, but parties. But besides that, yeah, it's definitely true that the Ecuador society is completely different. Ecuadorian society is completely different. And, 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 and there is this, this kind of political or social organization related to, to the indigenous movement called Conaye, who historically, during the 80s especially, uh, had a lot of power and, and, and still uh, it's quite a significant political actor in Ecuador. And they were uh, partially involved with this process, with these sorry, protests. It's true that under, under Correa government, they were kind of against him. And, 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 and in a way, he was the only one who could actually uh, rule the country, having them on the opposition? But but right now it seems that there is there is like a yeah I would say there is like a stronger social or political organization behind the protests in Ecuador, which actually I mean the consequences of the protest was that this this cut on the subsidy uh, was was disregarded and and it's not going to happen finally. Uh, so we have to see what happens. I do think that that. And this is a difference uh, compared to the to, to to the Bolivian case, where the indigenous indigenous organizations finally found a way to express themselves in the electoral arena. In Ecuador, that didn't happen in the last years, and the way the Conaye solved this before was choosing uh, Gutierrez as a candidate, and 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 and, and who was a military, and and and, and that didn't end that well so before Korea so 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 right now it's hard to tell what what's going to happen I mean Gonaye has a strong a really strong grass grassroots uh, political organization mm. but so far we haven't seen them translating that into a more like a, an electoral alternative let's say Right. No, that's interesting. I, I, I think it's something to keep an eye on, but because I, I think at least the initial wave of protests there in Ecuador has abated because uh, you know the fuel subsidy has been reinstated in a different form by by Lenny Moreno. So yeah, um, that's something to to watch out for. I think uh, as, as we go forward, maybe as a way of wrapping up, we can talk a little bit about uh, kind of return to the themes that we were talking about in terms of consumerism and development, because I think a, a lot of the discussion. Uh, on the left, especially in, in Latin America, in terms of models of development, circulates around the question of what kind of consumerism should one hope for? What, you know, should it just be the basics and should we, uh, you know, forget about having the kind of consumer goods that are available in Europe or and North America because that's just um, not feasible? Or, you know, should there be a, a return to, you know, import substitution, industrialization, if that's possible at all? Um, so, I mean, because I think you, you know, this is some of your academic work. How do you see this playing out? Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Not not because I care about because it's I think it's important. I mean, I do think that during the sixties and the seventies there were there were really interest there was really interesting debates in, in Latin America about what kind of development should we follow, and this was a rejection or a reaction against, if you want, the most the most uh, mainstream theories coming from the modernization theory and and the Rostonian versions of of of, of development. 
so, so in that sense, Latin America developed uh, thanks partially to, to, to the dependence school and to Latin American structuralism. Uh, Latin, American, Latin America developed uh, new theories about development that were super related to, to the kind of consumption and consumerism that, that was being shaped at the time. Briefly, briefly, I would say that the kind of consumption that uh, that you have will, in a way, uh, shape the kind of development strategies you can have. So, so in the in the 70s, especially in the early 70s, there was this idea that that Latin America should it wasn't just consumption, but it was the lifestyle that Latin American countries were were importing from, especially from the states, and and how those lifestyles didn't have anything to do with with what you could call a national or a Latin American tradition. So, so in that sense, even uh, even in countries like Argentina, those those discourses were were kind of shaping the kind of development that 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 these economists and sociologists were aiming for for their countries. What it's interesting is that after the 2000s, many countries, some countries, especially Bolivia, but also in some senses Ecuador and Andrés Rafael Correa, began to talk again about again, uh, sorry, began to talk again about these these developmental debates and and, and began to talk about again about about consumerism and the need to think about what kind of of goods are we or or, or do we think that are part of a of a reasonable standard of living for for our population. And I do think that if you actually uh, give that debate and you actually want to go through that debate, it's an interesting thing to, to, to think about in terms of a democratic society. I mean, we need to decide as much as we can altogether uh, what are we uh, able to produce and what are we able to consume. And we cannot assume that this kind of promise of, of, of consumerism or, or this idealized neoliberalism, if you want, is that you can have whatever you want if you just effort yourself. I mean, and, and that that's sustainable, I guess, that with clim climate change and, 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 or, 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 and, and yeah, and, and what we are seeing right now in, in terms of, 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 of how, the, how are we destroying our, our only planet, I think that we need to begin to think about those those patterns of consumption and the kind of development uh, that we we want to pursue in the future. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, that's interesting. I think, you know, the the discussion around, you know, what's called buen vivir or vivir bien yeah. in different countries, this alternative model of development you're discussing, on the one hand, seems sensible in terms of being appropriate to, to the stage of development. But at the same time, it seems to be a kind of post-materialist vision of one that accepts certain limits and closing off of possibilities of reaching a higher standard of living. On the other hand, the, the, the reality is that, you know, it is a question, as you say, about how many social resources these countries should be developing towards importing, you know, the most advanced consumer goods from from elsewhere and to what extent it should be producing them themselves or uh, orienting consumption uh, in, a, in other directions. Um, and I think in especially highly unequal societies like you have in Latin America, a lot of the discourse, at least the mainstream discourse, is created by people who live in a completely different reality to the majority of the people. And therefore, you know, having the access to certain consumer goods is a question which isn't even you know, under consideration for a vast majority of people for whom more basic necessities and the price of the cost of utilities is a much more 
um, a much more live issue than um, than certain consumer other kind of more advanced consumer goods, right? No, yeah, that's that's definitely right, and and I think right now, especially in in Latin America, uh, we need to think about the redistribution of income and 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 to have people going out of of this of of poverty and extreme poverty, and that should be the main the main concern of any any center-left government right now in the region, although I do think that there are certain, if you want more ideological debates, that need to be taken into account, especially by these new generations of activists who are being involved in politics. I do think that even if it's even if it's not the first issue we need to address right now, and right now we need to, to begin to, to close this, this yeah, income gaps, but also the gender gaps in, in, in Latin American societies, I do think that those are the crucial the crucial topics or items right now to be solved or to work with. But I do think that at the same time you do that, you need to have this this more deep or or long term or cultural uh, uh, yeah concerns about the future. So I do think that in politics you need to involve both levels. I mean, like the immediate needs, but also. What kind of society are you looking forward to build? Because if you don't have the second one, then the first one is just, it could be, <laughs> you could have like a progressive government and then and then a backlash, a conservative backlash. But if you have, I mean, if you have clear objectives about what you want in the future, I guess that the way you you go through more progressive uh, measures in the, in the immediate future uh, will make more sense, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Those debates are important because protests and riots like you're having in Ecuador and Chile right now are just a way of yelling stop, uh, but don't yeah. necessarily point to a specific way forward. Yeah. All right, Pablo, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I think that was really insightful. We've covered uh, a lot of ground, maybe, and uh, in, in hopefully the, the requisite depth in each in each place. Um, and if not, we'll have to call you back up again um, to okay. get a little bit more. Okay, thank you very much for having me. This was this was great. It was right. an amazing conversation. Cheers, Pablo. Cheers. Thanks. All right, that's it from Alpha Bunga Bunga this week. We are back next week with a patrons-only episode. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast if you aren't subscribed yet. We'd, of course, very much welcome and appreciate your support. We do slightly more intimate shows on there. And then we are back in two weeks' time, most likely with an episode on the current Curtis situation. We'll be recording that in the coming days. Very excited to be doing that. If you like what we're doing and aren't in a position to subscribe, we would greatly appreciate you reviewing us on Facebook, on iTunes, wherever else uh, you're able to leave us some gold stars. We're also available to follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, always at BungaCast. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.